Hi, and welcome back. This is Disability Saves the World with Dr. Fadi Shinuda. I am Fadi Shinuda. This podcast brings you insights from leading experts in disability and math studies from around the world. You'll hear about the research and work of disabled scholars, activists, artists, and our allies. You'll also get some insight into their lives, their favorite non-DS activities, hobbies, and adventures. Most importantly, you'll hear how they think disability can save the world. My name again is Fadi Shinuda. I use he, him pronouns, and I identify as a fat, disabled, cis man of color. On today's show, I am joined by Alan Martino, who uses he, him pronouns. Alan is an instructor at the Women and Gender Studies program at Carleton University and is a recent graduate of McMaster University in Sociology. His work has focused primarily on the intersection of disability and sexuality by engaging with people labeled with intellectual disabilities. I'm excited to speak to Alan about his work. One of the things that I really wanted to achieve in this project was bringing together sociology of sexualities and disability studies. So really, each field brings interesting insights. So I use a sexual fields framework. So I was really interested in understanding, first of all, what sexual spaces or sexual fields people with disabilities are navigating, or what I found was that some people are not even entering those spaces in the first place. Is life outside of academia so now I've been really into video games. <laughs> I, I got my uh, Switch <laughs> and I've been playing Mario Kart uh, with friends and getting angry when I lose. <laughs> so I, I get very competitive when I'm playing video games these days. Uh, but I really enjoy it. It's just such a relaxing activity. Like, you know, you can just, and it's bonding, right? So right now with the pandemic, mm. we're kind of physically separated from each other, right? And of course, to ask him how he thinks disability can save the world. Hi, Alan. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. I'm so excited to have you. And uh, you are actually one of the first people... um, that I've like spoken to in a while, it's been about maybe like six months since I recorded one of these. So I'm so excited to like get back to talking to people more frequently about their work. And I'm so happy that you're the first one to to kind of relaunch in some ways the podcast. Uh, so I want to jump right into segment one, what I like to call inside the project, the research, the work, the art. So tell me why disability studies? Yes, I'll say that there are lots of different things that brought me to this field. Uh, First of all, I grew up with an older sibling uh, with a disability, and that definitely changed the way I looked at the world from a very early age, right? So having wheelchairs and things around the house was just part of life, you know, and uh, even the way we we had physical fights as siblings, like sometimes (laughs) I remember my parents would put us on the floor and we're like snakes, (laughs) you know, on the floor fighting each other. So we had, I had a really beautiful, you know, childhood and growing up with someone with a disability in my family really made me think about ableism in an everyday basis, right? Having to go to restaurants in ahead, of, ahead of time to see if they were accessible, for example. So things that some people might take for granted. Um, the other piece that really uh, drove me home to disability studies has been in my experience working with self-advocates. Um, working with people labeled with intellectual disabilities had also added me 
giving me a different lens to understand ableism in everyday life, some of the challenges that people face and try to find ways of working together, right? To deal with those challenges. That's fantastic. I mean, uh, the thinking about like uh, what you were saying, like living with your brother and doing like an access audit was such like a natural thing for you and your family because it was essentially what you would do anyways, right? It's like, it's how you, uh, it's how you ensured that everyone was going to be able to eat at the restaurant. That's really cool. So it's always been a part of you. I know that your uh, work has always intersected with sexuality, disability studies and sexuality. So why that particular topic for you? Yes, uh, again, it's very interesting how my work is so connected with my everyday life and my background. So, you know, one, having a sibling who I've witnessed having so many struggles with relationships, building those kinds of intimate relationships uh, definitely made me interested in this, but it was a particular scene. So I used to volunteer at a community organization for people with, with intellectual disabilities and it was the arts program. We used to do a lot of improvisation exercises and one particular day, this young man with Down syndrome was in a, doing the scene about friendship. And he says something like, love is natural. We all love. Everyone in the room was okay with that. And, you know, I could hear in the, in the background, someone saying, oh, like so cute. And then the scene continues. And then he says, sex, that's what I want. Now that, that sentence changed the energy in the room, right? So in the room, we had other people with intellectual disabilities and direct care workers, support workers. That changed the vibe in the room. There was a sense of discomfort and giggling and you know embarrassment. And the only thing that the support worker leading the session could say was, isn't the weather beautiful today? And then he ended the scene. And to me, that really felt wrong. <laughs> One, because we have a man on stage who's describing a part of life that should be just treated just like any other part of life, mm -hmm. right? That is important to him. And that kind of was shut down, right? Literally shut down yeah. at the end and the scene ended without acknowledging that this is just a normal part of life. So once I saw that happening, I was like, I need to do something about it. Mm -hmm. So I was an undergraduate student at the time. And I developed a research project where I talked to staff members and thought like, how do we change these policies and practices? So we're not shutting down these conversations. That's really amazing. I mean, it does come to sometimes to those moments, right? Where you're just sitting there and you hear and experience something. And it's so interesting how it goes from awe, right? To like this, like the, this, uh, like clearly inspiration or not even, sorry, not inspiration, but clearly this, this like pity or, or even like that's so sweet or all those kind of sentiments to kind of like, no, 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 we can't talk about that. That's not a subject that's connected to these groups of people. Um, so exactly. what, yeah, yeah. Uh, is there a particular way that you've looked at um, um, disability and sexuality? Is there a particular theory or a particular um, set of theories that you've used? Yes, so uh, in my, uh, my PhD, I conducted 46 interviews with people labeled with intellectual disabilities oh here in Ontario. Oh my God, that is so <laughs> many interviews, Alan. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it, it was really interesting, the, the range of experience that I got to hear, right, because of the number of interviews. Um, but it, it was one interesting fact, though, that I, I think it's important to mention is that 
the first time when I went to the ethics board to, you know, to suggest this product for a project, uh, it was interesting because the first feedback that I got from the ethics board was, quote, are you sure you want to do this? Are they going to give you any good data? So wait, wait, people with disabilities. You got an email from the ethics board that said like, this may not be a worthwhile project. Exactly. Oh that very question. <laughs> yeah, that people supposedly were not going to give me any good data. And then the follow-up suggestion from them was that I should instead talk to family members or staff from organizations. You know, and I cannot tell you, it took me about four months of back and forth and meetings and phone calls and phone calls with my community members to convince members of the ethics board that this was a worthwhile project. And not just that, it was one, worthwhile talking to people with disabilities themselves. But secondly, that it was worth, it's okay to only talk to people with disabilities. Like that, that set of voices alone is enough. You know, like that we don't need parents, we don't need support workers to come together to be able to qualify or, you know, give credibility to disabled yeah. people's voices. So I was very proud to, you know, that I was able to deliver the project the way I wanted. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to achieve in this project was bringing together sociology of sexualities and disability studies. So really each field brings interesting insights. So I use a sexual fields framework. So let me tell you what this is. Imagine yeah. you're going to a, a gay club, right? When you enter that space, let's, it's a sexual field. It's a space that brings together people who are looking for intimacy, pleasure, some kind of intimate connection. And in these spaces, we have a lot of power struggles and hierarchies. Mm. So when I go to a particular queer space, I know what kinds of bodies are you know, privileged in those spaces, what skin color and so on. So that's something that I would call sexual capital. So we enter those spaces with different qualities or embodied you know, experiences that put us in different positions in hierarchies. So I was really interested in understanding, first of all, what sexual spaces or sexual fields people with disabilities are navigating, or what I found was that some people are not even entering those spaces in the first place and because of lots and lots of constraints in their lives. So I wanted to understand how do they navigate the spaces? What kind of sexual capital do they try to use to land a partner at the end of the day? Hmm. So I want to go back for a second to this, to the question of ethics, because I think it, it does happen mm -hmm. quite a bit, um, specifically like people with intellectual disabilities or people labeled with intellectual disabilities, uh, that um, ethics review boards at universities, like don't consider them don't consider them to have the capacity, right? To like participate. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering like for people who want, who people who are listening to this, who want to do research with and alongside um, people labeled with intellectual disabilities, what advice do you have for them? Yeah, it's really unfortunate that sometimes, not all, but some ethics boards and members, they do have medicalized understandings of disability, right? As a quick example, and one of one ethics review board recommended that I would ask people's IQs to determine whether or not they could participate in research, right? And that's a very problematic wow. way of making decisions like that, right? So I think one of the first thing, first step that I would say is be prepared to educate people, which can be, you know, in a positive note, it could be an opportunity, right, to mm. disrupt how people think about disability. 
So on one hand, I was happy, I was proud that I was able to disrupt how some of the members of the committee were thinking about disability as simply vulnerable as something to be silenced or something that doesn't have, give someone credibility. So I was proud of that. But of course, that took some kind of privilege on my part too, that I could wait four months to start a project, right? One of the things that I've certainly noticed among colleagues is sometimes you, I've seen students who want to do projects with people with disabilities involved, but because of these barriers, they end up giving up and then they yeah. just do the other routes. Let me just talk to the family members instead, right? And I get it because there are constraints on students too, right? There's time, there's finances, but it only makes me wonder how many projects don't happen because of that kind of boundary, right? That is Absolutely. Set up. I mean, it's interesting for me because I always get pushed back when I, you know, you know, my work predominantly is with students with disabilities or students like math students or distressed students. And it's interesting that people always ask me, but you don't get the professional's opinion. You don't get the counselor's opinion. You're not getting. And I'm like, but their opinion is like the institution, the institution, rep they're represented over and over and over again in every single piece of literature and all the documents. The discourse is clear, right? Uh, their their interactions might differ but that would be important through the perspective of the students like i imagine you you know you ask them you ask the your participants about their interactions with the people who they live with their family their friends their communities but it's through their perspective that it's significant or important not necessarily through the lens of other people um yeah that's so great i love this conversation um uh, so so you finally get ethics approval. I'm now wondering, uh, <laughs> how do you go about ensuring like accessible interviews? How do you go about ensuring, you know, a clear methodology, all those kinds of things? Yes. So, you know, it includes multiple steps, right? And giving people multiple opportunities to learn about the study, to ask questions, to feel comfortable, right? So first time people would hear about the study, we would have a phone call or meet any way they wanted to meet. And that was one first opportunity, right? To talk about the study, get more information. I actually paid a colleague of mine who specializes in plain language to translate all the research documents to plain language, uh, which was, it made a huge impact. Uh, yeah, I know sure. that, you know, that was significant uh, for people, but also finding creative ways of delivering the same message. I know, for example, that we can use images to share, you know, to describe sentences as well and complement that information. So that's something that I definitely applied and then as a second step before the interview, once again, I would talk to participants again about the project. I, you know, I always allowed people to take material back to their family members or anyone in their care relations that would help them as well to read about the study. So giving people multiple spaces. I think the key thing for me that I found that was extremely important for me was making sure that people were doing this because they really wanted to. Right, because sometimes, especially with folks with intellectual disabilities, sometimes they're pushed into doing things that you know it's just not sometimes because they want to, but it's just because that's the schedule in the place in quotes, or because that's what they have to do. But I really wanted to respect their choices. So an interesting story is uh, one day I was walking around and I got a phone call. It was a mother actually. She wanted her son to participate in the study. And, you know, it came from a very positive position, right? It's a mom who's like, I don't feel comfortable having a conversation about sexuality with my son, but I would love for him to have a space to just talk about it. 
So on one hand, I, I appreciate like that doesn't happen very often, a parent coming to talk to me. But at the same time, I, what I told her immediately is, well, it, but it's still your son's option, right? To participate mm -hmm. this on this or not. And indeed, the son chose not to participate and that was respected at the end of the day. So for me, those moments of respecting people's choices was extremely important in that methodological approach. That's great. I mean, what a, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's really good to learn about that. There are these very, very clear differences um, between like people participating because they want to, and then like this, you know, people being pushed and people not necessarily, what I'm trying to get at is there are so few options for some groups of people in society that when anything comes up, that potentially like centers or includes, there's like a mad dash, right? To, if I can use that sanest language, there's a mad dash to like, you know, mm -hmm. get people like participating and included when maybe that's not the right thing for them. So what did you find out? How are these sexual fields being <laughs> operated? What is going on? Tell us. Yeah, so first of all, I think one of the key pieces is how, you know, which wouldn't surprise, I think, many people in disability studies is that a lot of people are just not accessing sexual fields in the first place. But this is something that is taken for granted in the sexualities literature because it's assumed that if you're an adult, in right, over 21 years old, you have access to spaces if you choose, right, to participate. But what I found is that a significant number of people that I talked to, even though they were in their 30s and 40s and 50s, they were still not allowed to participate in sexual spaces, going to a club, going to a bar, or using dating apps. And not only that, they were capped in a, in a state of infantilization in a way because mm. there were uh, quite a few participants actually actually told me that they were they were told by family members or support workers that they should wait until their 40s or 50s to actually then start dating. You know, and it started with one participant saying something like that. And then more and more participants started saying the same thing that they had been told to wait. There was a sense that they should wait for the right time. And the right time wasn't now. And it was very later, like in their 30s, 40s, 50s. And that to me said something about the ways that we're still discouraging people with disabilities from having, experiencing intimacy, forming families, having pleasure in their lives. So that was a significant piece. I think the other piece too is the level of surveillance and punishment. I spoke with folks who may have had an experience of dating someone, uh, usually another person with an intellectual disability, but they got punished for doing simple things like kissing on the cheek, right? Mm. Or kissing their partners. Things that are so harmless, right? That a non-disabled person would not be punished, right? For doing simple gestures of affection like that. But for some of my, you know, people that I talked to, they were actually faced with punishment, not being able to see the other person, sometimes not being able to call their partners after, certain, after 6 p.m., for example. So we're talking about people who are so constrained in terms of how they can experience romance and intim intimacy in their lives, right? That's, it's, that's kind of really hard to hear, but, you know, because there's like a sense of loss, right? That, that um, that's part of these people's lives and part of, you know, especially because there's clearly a desire there, right? To do those kinds of things, but that's kind of quashed. 
did you hear any stories of resistance? Did you hear any stories of people, you know, doing really fantastic things that kind of like, you know, so many of us do when it comes to love and romance? Absolutely. And I'll share a couple of stories that I really found powerful. One of them uh, was this older woman. Um, we're having an interview and she initially asked for her support worker to be in the room with us during the interview. And that happened. And the phone rang and the support worker left for just about two minutes. As soon as the support worker left, she whispers and says so quickly, you know, I'm dating someone at my group home, but don't tell anyone because I'm gonna get in trouble. So, but just don't tell anyone, but we're having a great time and we love each other. She spoke so fast, right, and whispering. And then as soon as the support worker comes into the room, we just continue like nothing happened. To me, you know, mm -hmm. it's a form of agency and resistance, right? Like she's keeping this relationship a secret as a way to keep that, you know, important part of her life going. So that's one good story. I think the second one is an amazing um, activist that I got to interview. This activist, she knows that a lot of people around her are living housing arrangements that don't allow for privacy, where they're not allowed to watch porn, for example, or have pornography, you know, pornographic magazines. So what she does, she has fun nights with friends where they can come and watch porn movies and do whatever they want. And she shares information about sex toys with her friends, right? And helps people find, build dating profiles on apps. Like this, how amazing is that? That's right? amazing. Uh, <laughs> like so people you know are, she's not only you know finding ways to remain sexual herself but she's also supporting others in her life to find that intimacy and love so that to me was just such a powerful moment to hear so uh, I wonder what uh you learned about like sexuality by um through like the lens of disability or through the lens of disability studies? Is there something new that you can say to sexuality because of the research you've done? Absolutely. I think, for example, the fact that the folks that I've spoke with, they're given such a limited menu of options. Hmm. I think that's an insight that sexuality scholars should know about. Uh, we want we want to believe that people know that there is an array of ways of expressing your gender, your sexual identity, your sexuality. But the way that I spoke with people, and that's another interesting finding in my studies, is that most men and women, they were attending this men and women's groups, and they were being taught different lessons about what it means to be, in quotes, a good man or a good woman. And that's the language that they used even themselves. So for example, being a good woman meant never starting, like hitting on a man. You don't take initiative, right? Mm. You wait for the men to come to you. Being a good woman means knowing how to defend yourself and protect yourself from sexuality and sexual advances, right? It means knowing how to cook. For men, it's about learning how to be a good man, which means not making sexual advances on someone or looking dangerous to others, right? So they were learning specific ways of being a good man or woman. It's... And it always through the lens of heterosexuality, right? It's so, so like 1950s, like... <laughs> Susie Housemaker exactly. or whatever, like, it's like, who's running this workshop? <laughs> exactly. Or even like, a, you know, almost like a PG-13, like oh my where, God, yeah. you know, it's no white, she can get a kiss on the cheek and that's as far as they go. And that's the boundary. Again, going back to what we were just talking about, right? There is a boundary mm -hmm. in terms of what is acceptable or not, right? And I think it goes back to this idea, like totally infantilizing, right? Like you were saying before, just... um 
uh, of these particular people's bodies and minds and uh, and of and that extends to their sexualities. Um, I guess before moving forward onto the next section, I just wondered, uh, is there anything else you want to tell us? Like, uh, is there a question that you had wished I asked, for example, that you think people should really know about when it comes to your research and work? I just hope that people, you know, are thinking about the rich array of sexualities among disabled people, right? I think one of the things that I've seen very often is that Alan, come on, you're already telling that telling us that people are with disabilities, with intellectual disabilities are sexual. Now you want to tell us that they have multiple kinds of sexualities around? <laughs> it's too much. Mm. So I think the sense of diversity within people with disabilities should be recognized as a powerful, amazing thing that is just how it is in life, right? That we shouldn't just assume that everyone is heterosexual, that everyone wants monogamy, that everyone is, you know, um, just one way of being. I want people to have a larger menu of options because when you go to McDonald's, you don't want to just have Mac chicken. Like you want to have a whole bunch of other things that you can try at least. Then you can figure out if you don't like it, you know, or if you like it. But if you don't even know that you have those other possibilities, like how do you, right? How do you know that yeah. or have a chance to experience those things? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you and congratulations on finishing and, and um, you know, I know some of this has already been published, but I'm sure more of it's going to be coming out soon in lots of different ways. So I want to move on to segment two, what I call the middle or the liminal. And I just want to know who is your academic crush? Think, speaking of romance and sexuality, but maybe in like a PG-13 kind of way, who is your academic crush? <laughs> Yeah, so there is one sociologist, Dorothy Smith. Uh, she's someone who made my sh my legs shake the first time I met her at a conference. <laughs> I remember going to her with her book in hand so she could sign it and oh, like wow. shaky voice. <laughs> shaky voice. I, I read all your work and I love it. And I brought it to disability studies. It's really cool. And her response was, oh, how about you want to sit down and tell me more? I'm so curious. Oh, my and God. And we actually sat down. <laughs> we actually sat down. And we had this, you know, brief discussion about how I was using her work in disability studies. She was just so proud and so amazed to have it in a different place that maybe she didn't think about, right? And she was like, send me your papers. I'd love to read it. And it was just such a beautiful encounter, like such a respected scholar and brilliant woman that I admired who was so approachable, so kind and humble and interested in disability studies, like learning about different perspectives. So to me, that was my moment. That's so beautiful. Like um, uh, Eliza was on the podcast a couple of a couple of days ago or a couple of weeks ago, and she had mm -hmm. talked about um, meeting uh, Eli Clare and just, you know, kind of like mm -hmm. fangirling as well. Uh, and of course, Eli met every kind of like expectation. And it sounds exactly the same with Dorothy, Dorothy Smith. I have a thing against superstars because I don't think they're necessarily like the greatest, you know, superstar mm -hmm. academics. But so far, mm -hmm. Eli Claire and Dorothy Smith sound like amazing people. So maybe <laughs> I need to change my perspective. I don't know. Uh, yeah, at least okay. these two, they're amazing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, what advice do you have for younger academics? Is there something that you think they really need to know before kind of jumping into this field and into this kind of profession? Absolutely. I can say two things that uh, that really made a difference for me, I think. 
One is having a mentor, having someone that truly wants you to succeed and who has an open mind and wants to support you. Like I've been so incredibly lucky to be able to find a, a beautiful, amazing mentors in disability studies. Like his scholars like Karen Yoshida, uh, Anfad Sherman's, Claudia Malacrita. These have been scholars that have moved my thinking with so much kindness and brilliance. Um, they know how much to push you, right? To, they want to challenge you, but they push you and challenge you from a position of kindness and understanding and patience. So that to me made a total difference. So I would really encourage you know, people to reach out, even sometimes outside of your department or outside of your university. I know it can be challenging to reach out to people, um, but I really, you know, I found, I was able to build so many incredible relationships by putting myself out there. And some of the organizations like the Sociological Association, for example, have actual programs for mentorship where they do that awkward ice breaking you know, moment of introducing you and a scholar. Oh, wow, so that's I great. Found... Exactly. So through, for example, the American Sociological Association, I was able to connect with a scholar in disability studies and another one in sociology of sexualities and everything was facilitated. So it wasn't as awkward, right? And they understand that it can be difficult for a graduate student to approach, you know, a more established, for example, academic. So for me, the biggest thing that made a difference was having a mentor that really is there to advocate for you. Um, and the second piece that it's to keep your feet grounded. That's something that my father tells me all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, I grew up in a working class family. I was the first person to ever go to high school in my family, right? Wow. Much less like, you know, undergraduate, graduate studies. So one of the things that he tells me all the time is to keep my feet on the ground. And what the way I understand it is the best way to do that is to be connected with the community. Mm. So, you know, I really cherish my relationship with self-advocates, people who are who have the lived experiences, who are supporting the work, they know, you know, what needs to be done. And for me, it's using my the what I have, the tools I have to support the work. So having those relationships in the community as well and nourishing, not just um relationship of using people but actually nourishing and taking care of those relationships is very important i agree with both of those ideas pieces of advice so much and uh and thank you for introducing like people who are listening to this resource at at csa is it the council of so what is it again yeah so the canadian sociological association has won a mentorship program for example yeah fantastic all right. Outside the project, the research, the work, the art, we are in segment three. And I want to know uh, the most famous person you've ever met and what it was like. <laughs> okay. I don't know if it's an actual meeting, but I was always a fan of Mariah Carey. So I, when I heard that she was coming to Toronto, I was like, I need to go and see her. Uh, I bought like a ticket on row number six so I could see her with my own eyes and I was just like, excited. <laughs> and then the concert was awful. <laughs> so that was a letdown, unfortunately. No. Why was it awful? It was, well, uh, I mean, her performance wasn't very good. Mm. She, I, she, she was late for like two or three hours. Uh, so we're just like waiting. Um, and then the show was like, I don't know, 45 minutes of actual singing. <laughs> it was very disappointing. I'm sorry. Um, 
Mariah, you know, do better, uh, Mariah. <laughs> she broke a queer heart that day. Yeah, I hope she knows that. But, you know, and I was so, like, let out that I was like, I refuse to listen to her music for the next two weeks. And I did. And then I got back to it. <laughs> I forgave her eventually. <laughs> her punishment. <laughs> that was her punishment. <laughs> exactly. Just for two weeks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, have you, by the way, have you read her biography? I hear it's amazing and that the audiobook is even better because she sings certain parts of it. Oh, yes, I have the audiobook and I love that it's her voice, you know, reading it and she sings, you know, between chapters, which is beautiful. And, you know, sometimes we take for granted like what the experiences that people go through, right? We don't know what people go through in their everyday lives. So it, it was nice to see a vulnerable side of her life. Like she went through her own challenges and struggles. Absolutely. So it was nice to see that side of her, right? And, you know, it's just like our friends, right? We never know what each other, what, how we're dealing with the current times and those things. So it's just nice when people are so generous and share how they are feeling, right? Or the experience they had. Absolutely. Okay, obscure fact. What obscure fact do you carry around? <laughs> and, uh, you know, when there's like a lull in the conversation and you want to fill the silence. Ooh, so I think a concealed fact about me is that I actually used to be an actor when I was a child. So <laughs> not a lot of people know this. Now I guess a lot of people will know. Um, <laughs> but I was, a, I was an actor and I was in soap operas in Brazil. I was in commercials. <laughs> my fa my and... jaw just dropped. I love this. <laughs> which is very surprising for a lot of people. One, because I'm a very shy person in person, but as soon as I step on stage or in front of the camera, I become someone, something else. So I, rem <laughs> I remember, for example, doing one of my favorites was this commercial for a theme park. It was really spending a whole day at a theme park looking happy. And the camera person was just like screaming at us like, be happier, be happier, smile more. And we're just like playing because we're all kids. Like we're just literally enjoying the whole thing, having a theme park all for ourselves. And that was like a magical day. Like it doesn't happen every time, right? Can I, can I ask, um, so you said soap operas, right? Yes. So are we talking <laughs> telenovelas? Yes, exactly. Are we, are we talking like people slapping each other and falling and like very extreme close-ups and zooms and all those kinds of things? Exactly that. Oh my God, I, I, I love this. Yes. I participated in two soap operas. Well, I hope, I hope some listeners will go down like a YouTube, uh, you know, rabbit hole looking for <laughs> clips of Alan as like a young actor. Um, why did you give it up or like, or, or maybe you didn't give it up. Are you still interested in doing any kind of acting work? I, you know, I would be lying if I said that I didn't think about it sometimes, like, and who knows, maybe someday, like I studied theater for four years. Uh, oh, wow. Another fun fact that not a lot of people know, I studied theater for four years. I really enjoy acting and I bring that to my teaching. Like the students often say that I'm very like moving around and expressive, but I think a big part of it is my acting background. I just kind of try to, you know, speak with my body. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I still like acting. I'm hoping to get back to acting just as a hobby, at least, because I find it good for myself. It helps me move my body, be centered, focused. So I like it. 
I mean, I definitely, I definitely understand when you were saying like you use like acting helps you to teach. That's so, I mean, it's such a performative like job and such a performative kind of, uh, it, it has to be in order for it to be good. I mean, I always think teaching is more like cr- being a cruise director. I've said this before, because in addition <laughs> to like acting, like everything is fine. The ship is totally good. Mm-hmm. But you also have to direct people into safety. You have to make sure everyone knows where they're going. <laughs> you have to make sure that the person who's wounded is going to be healed. Like you have to make a joke at some point. Like it's so much happening. It's so much so is true. going on. Yeah, so it's like, Always I think love of this a, image a, of a cruise director. Yeah, even though I've never been on a cruise, so. <laughs> <laughs> but that would be my image of a cruise too. So yeah, spot on. <laughs> um, are you currently reading anything uh, that you really like? Yeah, always reading something. Um, I think a book that I've been rereading recently, which I really recommend to people, is um, Claudia Malacrida's book, A Special Health. Uh, institutional life in Alberta's eugenic years. Um, I've been rereading that. And one of the things that I love about it is that it shines light on a history. It's very Canadian, right? It's Canada. And every time in my classes, when I ask students, like, do you know about the history and even present experiences of institutionalization in Canada? So few people know about it. Um, They have no clue. Um, so it's such a beautiful book that is accessible. It's easy to read and engaging and shares such important stories. So for me, it's just about rereading that now for a paper I'm working on, but I highly recommend to people, um, especially people in Canada who may not know the history we have, right? We think it's other countries, but us. We always think it's other countries, right? It's not Canada, but I mean, Canada for a long time, 1972, right? In Alberta, mm-hmm. but like you said, there are still contemporary forms of institutionalizations today. And yeah, we, we can't uh, take our eyes off of those things. What, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Do you have a hobby or is there something that you do that gives you joy? Um, And I'm wondering if you could share that with us. Absolutely. So now I've been really into video games. <laughs> I, I got my uh, Switch <laughs> and I've been playing Mario Kart uh, with friends and getting angry when I lose. <laughs> so I, I get very competitive <laughs> when I'm playing video games these days. Uh, but I really enjoy it. It's just such a relaxing activity. Like, you know, you can just, and it's bonding, right? So right now with the pandemic, mm. we're kind of physically separated from each other, right? Um, but what I found is that by playing video game with friends and playing games, competing, but also talking and getting updates about each other's lives, doing that, it's just so nice. Like it's a one way of staying connected um, that I just really treasure. Or some of the things that I also started doing, doing you know, now with the pandemic was having online board game nights with friends mm. and playing um, there's something about, again, it's about checking on each other, right? It's just an informal way of keeping those relationships alive and healthy and just supporting each other and making each other laugh, right? I mean, one of my favorite games is Cards Against Humanity. Very problematic, but I love it. <laughs> Especially when you play with the right people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, you need to play with the right people uh, and it's just so much fun, right? Like it's a moment that you can relax and be with friends. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, 
And so the the way that we always end the podcast is with this question. Um, I want to know, how do you think disability can save the world? Oh, in so many ways. (laughs) I would say, first of all, interdependence. I think, if anything, the current times, to me, goes to show the disability justice and interdependence are so key. Right. Mm-hmm. If there is a time for us to come together and think about how we're interconnected and how, you know, this is the time. So for me, it's really heartbreaking, to be very honest, when I see people not, you know, respecting, you know, the <laughs> pandemic or thinking about each other. Right. Like, I think this is the time to think about how do we move forward as a community here? Right. Like, how do we think about beyond oneself? Like to me, that's what matters the most. And I think that's a lesson that I learned from disability justice. Like it's really about this interdependence It's about thinking together, thinking intersectionally too. Like we know who's being more affected by COVID-19. How can we support these communities? Um, Staying safe, you know, navigating times of vaccination, getting information that makes sense to people. Um, One of the things that I also think about a lot these days is, just the fact that some people are res- resistant to taking vaccine or engaging with the healthcare system. And I think we need to put that into consideration that a mm. lot of people, marginal, you know, marginalized people don't have a good experience with you know, the medical system. That needs to be addressed, right? So there are lots of lessons moving forward, especially during the pandemic time that we need to, it makes us think about. The second lesson that I, especially because of my research area around sexualities, I think I love the notion of creeping sexualities, right? Mm. Transforming uh, or rethinking who we find desirable, what we find desirable, right? Um, I mean, there are so many ways that people with disabilities are creeping notions of sexuality and family, right? One of my participants, for example, he was told, you know, that he should just go to a clinic and get on birth control because that's the best way for him. But for, when he was telling me about the family he desires, he was saying, there's my family, there are friends, there are neighbors that can help me be the best parent I can be. To me, that's one example of expanding how we understand family, right? And this interdependence, this connections. So to me, that's what disability studies is about, is showing how interconnected we are, how interdependent we are and I think that's a beautiful thing and how we can transform how we think about sexualities love and all those things yeah that's wonderful that's beautiful well thank you so much Alan for coming on the show I really appreciate it no thank you so much again for the opportunity it was such a pleasure talking to another amazing incredible disability studies scholar thank you for doing this like honestly we need more these spaces like this so thank you I agree thanks Thanks again to Alan for coming on the show. Get in touch by sending us an email at disabilitysavestheworld at gmail.com. If you're interested in learning more about me, check out my website, fadyshenuda.com. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Fady Shenuda, and is edited by Yasmina Garcia. Thank you for listening and see you next time on Disability Saves the World.